Welcome, cryogenically frozen time pilgrim, to the Pavilion of News. It will be our pleasure to bring you up to date on current developments. Would you like your news in tablet form? You mean like on an iPad? I had one of those. No, I mean in tablet form. A tablet that you swallow. And it fills me up with news? Not exactly. We fill you up with news is the trademarked slogan of Facebook Talking Points Net Vibes GlaxoSmithKline. Our slogan is, no more, feel better, live longer. I can't help but notice some commercial names in those media companies. Is this pill you're giving me pure news, or is there advertising in it? I do not understand the distinction you are making. Please restate your question. Well, back in my time, there were issues about keeping the editorial side and the business side separate. Sometimes they even called it church versus state. The idea was news should be news, and commercial content should be separate. I still do not understand. I am searching my database for the difference between news and advertising, and I am not finding anything. Perhaps this is what people in your time period called crazy talk. Okay, okay, just give me the pill. Do I have to accept a whole bunch of terms and conditions? That happened when we woke you up. You accepted all the terms and conditions of every multinational corporation on this planet before we agreed to give you oxygen. Yeah, uh, is there anything you can do to help ease my transition? We have located in our archives a primitive but charming radio program called The Scramble. It will contain outdated information about the media, a disease we conquered long ago, and ancient politics from the Democrat versus Republican era. And now, to read you a message from President Bezos, Colin McEnroe. All hail President Bezos and his drones that deliver us our worldly goods. Actually, that doesn't even sound like science fiction. That sounds like something about 10 years away if, uh, if Jeff Bezos wants to be president. I'm sure he could start a plan right now where he would be president. I don't know if I want to live in that world or not, but I mean, I think that could absolutely happen. A little bit later in the show, as the voice from the future indicated, we will be talking about the disease known as MERS. We'll be talking to a chief of infectious disease at Harvard Hospital about exactly how scared you should be about MERS, as opposed to how scared the media has made you about it. Uh, Kevin Rennie will be joining us at the end. Uh, he was at the Republican State Convention this weekend, which was held at the Mohegan Sun Casino, just to show you how serious they are uh, about getting their destiny organized. But uh, here at the beginning is our super guest. We are, uh, I am in particular, very excited to have Bob Garfield, co-host of WNYC's On the Media, co-host of the Slate Language Program, Lexicon Valley. Uh, he's been a columnist. I, actually, I can actually say that I was reading Bob Garfield in the pre-internet era, when I had to go to the news library of the Hartford Current and get a copy of Advertising Age. Uh, and I would read it, uh, A, because uh, his columns were very entertaining, but also because I was trying to steal ideas from him. Um, and as I said to him over the weekend, that is the sincerest form of fandom. Bob Garfield's here uh, to run through a couple of topics with us. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Colin. Nice to be here. And uh, and while he's doing that, he's also uh, putting in the finishing touches on a graduation speech he will give later today. Have you figured out what you're going to tell them? Uh, yes, I am. I'm going to. It's a, a disquisition on media consumption, mm. and uh, basically tells them, um, you know, net net to stay away from cable news because it feeds everything that is bad in the world to you. Sounds good to me. Well, you're the second media kingpin to be giving a graduation speech today. The first, of course, was Jill Abramson, uh, formerly the executive editor of the New York Times, who spoke, I think, at Wake Forest's uh, graduation ceremony today. And she fits in with a topic that you want to talk about, which is the future of news, which also fits in with your graduation speech. I can see how this works now. Um, but, you know, the Jill Abramson mess, which one of their columns,
columnist David Carr described today as uh, starting to resemble an, an especially bloody episode of Game of Thrones, you know, has in it a kind of Rosetta Stone for talking about the future of news, not only because how it's all how it's unfolded in the current news media climate and and how the New York Times has become a thing being covered by the current media news constellation as opposed to one star in that constellation, but also because accompanying the firing of Jill Abramson has been the leaking of, well, first of all, everything that anybody could possibly find to leak, but especially this so-called innovation report, which maps out the digital future of the New York Times. But uh, that's me prattling on. Bob Garfield, do you see in this story, which really has become you know, a, a go-to story over the last four or five or five or six days. Do you see in this story some of the elements of what you think about when you think about the future of news? Sure, I do. Uh, although I'm not sure, I'm not sure how um, uh, omnipresent this story is. I think in our echo chamber, the stuff that we pay attention to, it's kind of like the. Uh, <laughs> the uh, Beyonce's uh, sister in the elevator with Jay-Z story. Everybody wants to know what really took place. Do I have the players right in that? Is Beyonce, that Solange, Jay-Z, you've got them right, yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. And it's it's the nerd version of that. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure that in uh, in the, the most of middle America, people are as fixated on the... Uh, on the Jill Abramson affair. You mean people, even regular people don't have Google alerts for the next Ken Aletta installment on The New Yorker? I, I can't weirdly, believe that. Weirdly, no. <laughs> weirdly, no. So, I mean, with the, uh, with the caveat that I'm happy to discuss this, although, you know, only as some percentage of your audience really cares, I will say that, yes, uh, this is a kind of Rosetta Stone story. Uh, I mean, it's got all the elements. The, the Abramson affair has all the elements. It's got... Uh, it's got uh, the allegations of, of sexism. It's got a, uh, a, a, a fight to the death between the two top managers at the New York Times. It's got public relations disaster. Um, and it's got, you know, the New York Times as a central character. You, you can't beat it. And by the way, it's, you know, it's, it's just bad news all around. No, there, there are no winners. In, in this Game of Thrones. It does. It does seem that way. Um, and, and it does seem, just to pick a couple of points here, you know, as we know, news organizations are notoriously bad when they become the story. The, given all the practice they have watching the unravelings and uncouplings that they cover as news, they seem to know remarkably little about how to function when they become that kind of story. And, and one of the things that struck me was that the New York Times, although, as we're going to talk about uh, in a few minutes, I mean, they're working hard hard on digital innovation and understanding the whole new news landscape. On the other hand, they seemed to think that this was a story that they could just kind of put out there and, and it would be more or less accepted by the world. I mean, I don't. they seemed not to understand that there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of opinionators and, and bloggers and aggregators and, and, and medium to large websites and BuzzFeed type things just waiting for a story like this one, which it, they would chew up and spit out in a manner that pleased them. I mean, does it strike you that the New York Times seemed a little unsophisticated about the media environment that was going to cover them this time? Uh, you know, I don't. Th I understand the question, mm -hmm. and and as you say, newspapers, all news organizations, are notoriously terrible when they themselves are being covered. Uh, the, the New York Times did a decent job of covering itself through all of this tumult. Uh, the you know they they have not shied away from the story as some organizations do, 
but um, they they certainly um, they certainly behaved as if that they didn't understand that this this news would trigger an avalanche. However, my my guess is, and I'm just guessing along with everybody else, but my guess is this was not very well planned. That that, that the uh, <laughs> the commotion is a function of how hurriedly this all came to pass. And, uh, you know, I think this, in all probability, was a straw that broke the camel's back kind of scenario. And that they finally, that uh, uh, Arthur Sulzberger Jr., the publisher, finally was at his wit's end about how to deal with Jill Abramson. And he knew that he was going to be accused of sexism. He knew that uh, he would be accused of uh, of a double standard. He knew it, he probably knew that he was going to lose control of the narrative, and he acted anyway because he was he was fed up. That's my guess. Um, and because we haven't heard Jill Abramson's side of the story yet, because unlike Times Management, she seems to be abiding by the terms of the severance mm-hmm. agreement, uh, you know, it's impossible for us to know what did take place. But uh, this seems to be the, uh, the, the, um, the, the idea of being so widely criticized so quickly, I don't think has to do with the Times not being aware of the media environment. It's just that they, they, they acted quite precipitously. Yeah, as we roll along here, if uh, anybody wants to chime in, our number is 860-275-7266. That's 860-275-7266. We're live here in the afternoon. And Bob Garfield, you know, one of the things that, that I was thinking when I asked that question, too, was this weekend we saw something that typically doesn't happen. Uh, you and I have both covered these kinds of stories in the past uh, where somebody there's been an uncomfortable uh, moment of severance. Um, and one of the things we hope for is that, well, maybe maybe the company will put out some kind of of statement further explaining this or maybe even saying what they didn't like about employee X. But we kind of know that's not going to happen because, first of all, it winds you up in court pretty fast these days if you say, well, actually, we employed employee X because he or she was a huge pain in the neck and, and bad at communication and terrible management skills. And, you know, we just didn't like employee X. Employee X can pretty easily get you into court and sort of saying that you're actually interfering with his or her future uh, employment. So they don't do that because it's reckless. Except the Times did it this weekend. Arthur Sulzberger got so tired of all the negative publicity he was getting about sexism and, and equal pay for women that he put out his own version of events with some pretty disparaging language about Jill Abramson. Uh, yes, he did. He dumped on her. Um, he dumped on her uh, quite extravagantly, and uh, and uh, you know along the, uh, the straw that broke the camel's back scenario described a history of through her entire two and a half years tenure as executive editor of the New York Times, of difficulty with her own staff, difficulty with the business side, difficulty uh, in general based on her, uh, I guess, a strident uh, manner, her brusqueness, brusque being the kind of word that gets applied to women managers uh, when men uh, managers uh, tend to be uh, lauded as assertive and uh, hands-on and tough, right? Men are tough, women are brusque. That you know, which is, by the way, at the heart of a lot of the suspicion about this, this firing, uh, the gender double standard. Um, but yeah, he did, and I. Who knows? Uh, there are many further shoes to drop in this in this saga, and I can't imagine that one of them won't be some sort of lawsuit uh, claiming that uh, that the Times violated its side of the uh, 
the severance in agreement and non-disclosure and, uh, uh, as you say, uh, uh, impinging on her future employment and, and so on. It's it's a it's a mess. It is a mess. Um, and and yes, it's a story that has legs, and all those legs have shoes, and those shoes are going to drop. Um, and you know what we have here co- coinciding with this, and and I think not by chance. Um, we've got sort of two sets of people uh, at the New York Times who are talking about their future. I think it's in David Carr's piece today that there are women at the Times saying, "Wow, am I going to be okay? Is this an okay place for women to work? Are women, you know, really not treated the same way as men are here?" And then we have this uh, 96-page innovation report uh, from within the Times, which was either never meant to be seen by the outside public or intended to be leaked at the first opportunity, depending on who you believe, in which all of the the people, the, the huge New York Times digital staff is also wondering, wow, is this a cool enough digital place so that I can stay here and that I can have a future here? Am I going to be okay? Is this a, a good digital place to work? And so this is maybe more of the kinds of stuff that really interests uh, the co-host of On the Media. The New York Times engaging in some other soul-searching right now that has to do with the division between the business side and the, and the editorial side, and it's di- the Times' digital future, which this report you know, it paints it a little bit bleakly. It uses terms like woefully inadequate, which you you never want to hear about some key aspect of your operation. So talk a little bit about this. What do you see in this, this innovation report? Uh, well, what I see is that, uh, that my definition of innovation and that of the New York Times are, are very different. <laughs> Because I'm pretty sure innovation implies being on the uh, the, the cutting edge, the avant-garde, right? Mm-hmm. The, uh, uh, but the New York Times is about 10 to 15 years behind pretty much the rest of the universe. And that's that was, is what's so damning about this report. Uh, they have, <coughs> excuse me, had to face the digital future like every other news organization uh, in the world uh, in the last 15 years. And they... Uh, they have made uh, strategically and tactically just about every mistake you can make and and fundamentally misunderstanding the difference between the print world and the digital world uh, the times and i've you know i've been saying this for s- some good while seems to think that going digital just means replacing ink with pixels mm. but it <laughs> that's not the difference uh it, it has to do with distribution, delivery, social, uh, uh, promotion, uh, and it, it, you have to break away from the mentality that the front page and the home page of your site are what dictates uh, uh, what your audience thinks is important, which hasn't been true for at least five years. And yet the Times has been unbelievably slow to adapt. Now, I should say, Colin, that I... I really liked the good old days. I loved the analog world of newspapering mm-hmm. where uh, third-party journalists uh, processed the events of the day uh, and journalistically and through their experience and their, their hard-nosed reporting and uh, served it up to readers uh, in, in approximately the way a physician serves up uh, uh, a prescription for patients. I really liked that world. And I think it's far superior to anything that is going to succeed it. But, you know, uh, looking fondly at the past does nothing for you in the present. And there is an avalanche coming down the mountain on the the New York Times. And in, in, in some ways, it's already half buried. And 
thinking about how it was better before the avalanche does nobody any good. And that is what's taking place. Other news organizations, traditional legacy mainstream news organizations, are way ahead of the times. And no, we don't want the BuzzFeedization of the New York Times, but in exactly the way that BuzzFeed is moving from its end of the continuum towards traditional newspapering, traditional newspapering has to move from its end of the continuum towards BuzzFeed, which is to say thinking not just about the journalism but about what happens in the digital ecosystem after a story is written and uh, and also thinking about uh, thinking about what its its audience wants and is likely to share and uh, there's no escaping it that is reality it is not the distant future it is the present and the times has been woefully incapable of of uh, coming to terms with that. Although they have, I think in the report, correctly identified the uh, ideal juncture between those two worlds that you're talking about, the world of the old times and the world of BuzzFeed. That's when Ashton Kutcher retweets a Nicholas Kristof package on uh, human sex trafficking. That's it. That's the golden moment. I mean, if you could just get that to happen, all of our problems are solved. Um, I, I want to just move on here because our time is short and I know you've got things to do too. Um, but the other thing you wanted to talk about, and it's really a whole show, but let's talk about it for five or six minutes anyway, is what you call the politicization of science. So we're talking about, well, I'll give you an example and I'll I'll let you kind of jump from there. So on one of these Monday shows a few weeks ago, I was talking to a different guest and we did start talking about the anti-vaccine movement. And I got uh, some negative feedback on social media afterwards by people who said that we had dropped the ball. And the way that we had dropped the ball was by assuming that the anti-vaccine movement was unscientific claptrap and just using that as our starting point and then talking about the subsequent ramifications of that, which is basically people are getting measles again. Um, and, 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 but, and so I wondered about that. Well, is that dropping the ball? Is the anti-vaccine movement or the creationist movement or the, clients, uh, the climate change denial movement entitled to a debate every single time around? Or can there be conversations where you start as a premise with the idea that this they is unscientific? They talk themselves silly. <laughs> they are entitled to talk about it amongst themselves all they want. <laughs> but responsible journalists do not give that conversation oxygen because it is claptrap. Vaccines categorically do not cause uh, autism. Uh, The lack of vaccines categorically uh, uh, reignites uh, diseases that had essentially been eradicated from society. And uh, those are facts. And uh, unfortunately, what happens, and, you know, just as evolution is a fact, it's not a uh, hypothesis. It's a fact. Just like global climate change, man-made global climate change is a fact. It is not. And, and if the political right wants to claim that it's some sort of uh, a, a politically inspired invention of the left, let them go crazy. But if you're a responsible journalist, you do not give oxygen to that kind of 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 nonsense. You can acknowledge that it exists, but you certainly are not in the business of giving equal time or creating some sort of supposed balance by having voices from both sides of a non-argument. And it it drives me crazy. And, and what I wanted to talk about was not so much the politicization of science, but the politicization of everything. It's as if 
uh, the entire physical universe was subject to, uh, to, to, to a partisan divide. But no, some things, you know, the, the saying you're entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. Mm-hmm. And the, the notion, the idea that, for example, in this country, the political right with a straight face uh, denies man-made climate change and suggests that it's some sort of, uh, some sort of socialist plot it, <laughs> it's uh, it's it's pretty bizarre, but not as bizarre as the idea that any journalist would give it the dignity of of uh, uh, would dignify that kind of um, um, political philosophy by giving it equal time. It's just nuts. You are one is sort of damned if you do and damned if you don't. At least at the level, it's not unlike nine eleven truthers who will sort of say, "You see, you are covering it up." You're refusing to engage with the set of ideas that we're putting out here. And, and one gets that a lot from the kinds of factions that you're talking about. Yep, it certainly does. Just as you will get email uh, based on the statements I just made, uh, which and the email will say this is proof positive of a leftist bias of the media that wants to suppress other ideas. No, no, that's not what this is. At some point... At some point, there is there are there are objective facts, and if you, in the face of an objective fact, it is irresponsible to create the notion of a controversy. And I, I, I'm sorry, but you know I wasn't that good a student in logic, but to um, to take that position uh, is not evidence of a. Um, uh, is is not evidence that I am biased. It is except that I am biased in favor of reality, uh, and, and uh, that's what's happening here. And I just won't, I will not be the the sort of reporter that uh, it, that cravenly uh, uh, dis, does a disservice to my audience by by welcoming uh, points of view from from discredited positions. I just won't do it because it's uh, it's journalistically irresponsible. All right. You know, go ahead. Uh, yeah. uh, Marco Rubio says that he doesn't believe in man-made global warming. Mm-hmm. Well, God bless you, Senator. I don't believe in gravity. <laughs> I disagree with it, but uh, somehow I'm not floating away from my chair. Uh, send all those emails to ctalarski at wnpr.org. She's guest producing today. <laughs> and uh, Bob Garfield, you have a graduation speech to give, so it's time for you to graduate from this program. I'll give you a little speech very quickly. The road ahead will be difficult. You'll face rejection sometime. But uh, if you stick to it and have gumption and moxie, you'll get to the graduation speech that you have to give later today. Go forth. Thank you, Colin. All right. Bob Garfield, co-host of On the Media, and many other things besides. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back with information, non-panicky, scientifically-based, Garfield-approved information about MERS. You've probably been hearing about something called MERS or actually a little bit more appropriately MERS-CoV. You may have some idea at least what you think it is and what kind of danger it poses to you. 
but we thought we'd actually get a little bit of actual medical detail about this. That's always helpful, right, to actually find out what epidemiologists and, and specialists in infectious disease think about a thing like that. Dr. Jack Ross is chief of infectious disease at Hartford Hospital. Uh, he's been following the disease at the medical level and I think also watching what we in the news media do with a story like that. He may be willing to talk about both things. But first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you, Colin. And, and let's just start with the real basics. What is MERS-CoV? And even maybe what do all those letters stand for? Yeah, it stands for Mid- Middle East uh, Respiratory Syndrome uh, Coronavirus. And it is a coronavirus. It's a virus similar to the, the common cold. It gets its names because it has little spikes uh, like a crown. Uh, it's a, a virus that's very common in nature in animals and humans uh, causing other diseases like the common cold. But MERS-CoV uh, emerged back in 2012 as a new coronavirus. Now, so far, uh, what you're saying doesn't sound all that scary. I mean, you're using words like common cold. On the other hand, we seem to be on, on some kind of alert here in the United States. So help us understand the distinction. That's a great distinction, Colin. The difference between this one and the other coronaviruses that we may be exposed to is this is a virus that's new, and it has a high mortality rate in the 600 or so cases that we have seen so far. And that's why it's gotten the attention. The other thing is that back in 2003, there was the SARS virus that emerged. That was also a new coronavirus, and that ultimately affected uh, almost uh, 8,000 people and killed about 10%. So that's why it's been the attention uh, since the, the fall of 2012 about this virus. It's gotten a lot more attention uh, recently because uh, we saw increased cases last fall in 2013, and then again this spring, uh, we've seen a marked uptick in the Arabian Peninsula. And then obviously we did have two imported cases in the United States recently. Now, when people die uh, from this particular virus, what are they dying from? In other words, what's actually killing them? Colin, what the disease is, is it starts out as a fairly mild flu-like illness, and then it progresses over time. For many people, it'll be a relatively mild disease, but for about 15% of people, they may end up in the intensive care unit. And what will happen for those folks, they'll end up dying of respiratory failure, renal failure, and complications of the infection itself. So one of the things that I inevitably wonder about this, all right, of the 600 cases that we're, we've seen, uh, most of those have been occurring in the Arabian Peninsula. Do they have the same ability, the same facilities to help somebody to stabilize that kind of person? In other words, is every fatality that's happening over there a fatality that would happen here in an American hospital environment? They are capable of providing uh, ICU care in the Arabian Peninsula and the United Arab Emirates and uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, in fact, many of the uh, employees over there, healthcare workers, may actually be foreign that go over there to work for a while, physicians, etc. And in fact, that has been one of the uh, issues with the cases imported back to a very small number of countries. It has been people traveling uh, from the Arabian Peninsula back to the United States or back to England, back to France, and then uh, the virus uh, comes with them because they're incubating at the time they depart the healthcare facility they work in over there. So do we know the exact method of transmission? We don't, sir. And that, I think, is one of the things with any of these things that then becomes uh, something a little bit scary. When we don't know what the absolute risk is, people tend to be uh, more afraid of, of things that are unknown. It appears to be much, much, much less transmissible than the common things that we encounter, such as uh, chickenpox or flu or measles. For the most part, about a third of the cases have been primary cases, meaning they occur out in the community somewhere, again, in the Arabian Peninsula. 
And then the, the secondary cases, for the most part, have been associated with health care. If you look at the two clusters that they had this spring in both Saudi and in the United Arab Emirates, two-thirds of the people infected were healthcare workers and were secondary cases, but one out of three were the primary cases that did come in. So, so far, at least this spring and again back in 2012, at least in Jordan, many, many, many of the folks who get this uh, get it working in the healthcare setting. It does seem as though one of the things that makes people nervous is air travel, because first of all, one of the reasons these viruses don't stay in their place of origin uh, and spread more quickly than they would have 100 or 200 years ago is people move around a lot in airplanes. When they're on those airplanes, of course, the air is being recirculated. People are sitting cheek by jowl. People have a sense anyway that they're in some kind of flying Petri dish. I don't know how accurate or fair that is, but I, I did note that perhaps just as an extra precaution, there was kind of a look back in these two U.S. cases, and everybody who was on uh, each plane was contacted. That's true. And in, in general, what has happened, people have flown on these planes. The CDC has invested well over a 1,000 hours investigating those two. And they're to date, and all of the cases, say, exported to places like the United Kingdom or France or Italy or the Philippines, Germany, there has never been a case transmitted on an aircraft. So I think that is very reassuring. I think if you look at just the, the secondary attack rate in Saudi Arabia, where the cases they had just in two months from February to April, they had almost 130 cases, roughly about uh, a third of those were primary, but they looked back at over 500 household contacts, and they found that approximately 1% uh, would have a secondary attack rate, so a very, very low secondary attack rate. We do know in the United States, though, um, that we do have a case the CDC announced over the weekend that is a secondary contact of the case from Indiana, and the gentleman never had symptomatic illness, but he met with the Indiana patient twice, and he has tested positive by blood tests uh, for MERS-CoV. So we have our, secondary our first secondary case in the United States. We had the two imported cases the end of April and the beginning of May in Indiana and in Florida. We're talking to Dr. Jack Ross. He's chief of infectious disease at Hartford Hospital. So um, let's just talk about the news media for a second. Obviously, people do get alarmed by these kinds of things. It's MERS. It's a scary sounding name. It has nothing to do or no real commonality with MRSA, but it sounds kind of like MRSA. And people are already afraid of MRSA. So are we helping or hurting with our reportage on this? I mean, in some ways, it seems not a bad thing if people wash their hands more often or take sort of basic precautions about anything, but are we unnecessarily inflaming people's fears and suspicions? I think programs such as this and some of the others that I've seen do not. If you provide the basic facts, you let people know what the unknowns are, you let them know that the transmission risk is not as how it may be perceived uh, by some people, I, I think you're doing a public service in terms of educating people. At the same time, I think you make them aware that if if they had traveled uh, to the Arabian Peninsula, they come back, and with 14 days of sick, it's an opportunity for them to get health care, or if they have contact with somebody who may have done that. It allows you to reinforce the, the basics of avoiding sick individuals, uh, making sure you wash your hands frequently, and seeking medical care when you need it. So I think it requires a balanced response. I think what you can say at this point, we know that it is uh, MERS-CoV is a coronavirus, we don't know where it emerged from. It may be associated uh, with camels, there's one report. It may be associated with bats. We don't know that. There'll be more to come there. We know that for the most part, it has a very, very, very low risk of transmission. 
We've not seen a large transmission in home settings. We've seen limited person-to-person spread. We've not seen a change in terms of the numbers infected, uh, except within healthcare facilities in the spring in the Arabian Peninsula. And I think it, it lets us know that there are, there's going to be a lot more to come. In May, June alone, there'll probably be over 100,000 people that will come from the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, about 75% of those are going to transit through five of our major cities, uh, such as Washington or Chicago, uh, Atlanta, New York. We need to be alert for the folks coming from there that if they did present to a health care provider, uh, having been in that area in the last 14 days, to think of it if somebody had uh, cold-like illnesses. I think another important point just to stress, and I think some of the, the news has done this, is about 20% of people are actually fairly asymptomatic with this and have been picked up, at least in the Arabian Peninsula, by blood testing or serology testing. And another point that's important that I haven't really heard stressed, though, Colin, is there have only been about 20 cases outside the Arabian Peninsula. They've been in 10 countries, and there have been uh, less than 10 cases of uh, secondary transmission out of Saudi so, or the United Arab Emirates. So when you put that in the, the balance over the last uh, two years, that is a very small number in terms of secondary transmission. You know, this whole thing also sets up this very interesting and complicated perception versus reality question. I mean, for hundreds and hundreds of years, diseases did move from place to place. They moved on ships. They sometimes caused very serious plagues. Uh, this isn't a new thing. On the other hand, what we have now is a lot of travel from a lot of different places. We also have the ability to detect at a much more sophisticated level what specific disease is moving where. So it seems as though not every day, but every few days, uh, one hears about something something new. People listening to Morning Edition this morning heard about uh, chikungunya virus, which mm-hmm. is uh, down in the uh, Caribbean and, and, and in Haiti, and it's mosquito-borne. It's a very different kind of disease. But for someone in your line of work, I don't know whether it feels like you're going to be fighting lots of little small battles over these diseases in a way that's unprecedented in human history, or is this just pretty much the way things have always been since we started moving around in ships? There's two questions there, Colin. Number one is just the the importation or the spread of infectious diseases. And again, uh, back when it took 90 days to get about anywhere, it was a very slow process. Nowadays, you're probably 36 hours from anywhere, any infectious disease. So we have to be vigilant. We have to be uh, aware of that process. The second thing is, and I'll, I'll go back to 1976 with Ebola or Lyme disease. We have West Nile. We had uh, Hantavirus in the early 90s out in Arizona. There will be new infectious diseases that emerge I think the interesting thing, and I think the reason the media gets involved very quickly now, is uh, the minute that report goes up on a surveillance system such as ProMed that's available to us worldwide, uh, the CDC or the Internet, uh, these get attention much more rapidly than perhaps they would have uh, even five years ago. So I think we have better surveillance systems. The Internet allows us to be more cognizant of what's out there, and it allows us to react more quickly. But at the same time, you're right, uh, we're not very far away from the next infectious disease. This is not SARS. This is not uh, the movie Contagion. Um, But it's scary because it's unknown. The thing that the press does stress responsibly is we are in the process of learning. We move forward. We acquire new knowledge about this every day or every week. It's important for that those points to be brought out, too. 
All right. So in this on the scale of all the things in the world you could be worried about, this one doesn't seem that high on the hierarchy. I could probably think of at least 20 things uh, to be a lot more scared of. I think I started following this back in September of 2012 with some of the first reports that came up at ProMed. I created a file for it just because it did worry me at that point because it was a coronavirus, it was new, it was novel, and because of the previous experience we had with SARS. I think what worries me now um, with this, not so much for the United States at this time, with the limited transmission we've seen, we've not seen the virus evolve so far with the sequencing that's been done. What does worry me is just that they've seen the spread within the healthcare facilities in Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. It points to opportunities for better infection control, perhaps, in those locations. It allows us to have a heads up. Uh, if we do see somebody from the Middle East uh, that comes in, they have a flu-like illness. It's been uh, less than 14 days. It gives hospitals in the United States an opportunity to isolate those individuals appropriately. So in terms of infectious risk to hospitals, yes, it's there. It requires a measured response. It requires vigilance on the, the front line of providers and ER providers. And I think many hospitals have begun that process already uh, over the last uh, almost 18 months. Well, Jack Ross, thank you so much for joining us. Chief of Infectious Disease at Hartford Hospital. Thanks for the actual information. It's always so helpful. Thank you, Colin. I was recently diagnosed with FMPS, which is Fluff My Pillow Syndrome, but all disease acronyms sound scary. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, Katie Talarski, and me. Today is the first day for intern Lily Tyson, so call in and demand to know how to get your free WNPR sweat hat. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Ashton Kutcher. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff dancing with a Michael Jackson hologram, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, our salute to taxidermy. And now, back to Colin. Yes, today is a special day. Uh, Bitsy Kaplan, ordinarily the spine and the heartbeat of the scramble, has a day off. Uh, and so Katie Tularski, the big kid, the executive producer, stepped in to produce the show. And then it's Lily's first day as an intern. So, so she's handling the phones right now. So if you have even the flimsiest question, call 860-275-7266. Remember to ask about your free WNPR sweat hat. No such thing exists, but it you know, can get the phones going. 860-275-7266. As we recap the Republican convention uh, held at the casino, the Mohegan Sun, over the weekend, Kevin Rennie, columnist for the Hartford Current uh, and the creator and host of the Daily Ructions blog. He's at the casino every weekend anyway. This wasn't really a big problem for him to go down and cover it. So we thought we would talk to him and see how much he soaked up. I in didn't be- go. You didn't go? No. You covered it from afar? I did. Oh. I let Diane Smith be my interpreter. All right. Well, that's always a good policy. Well, if you had to tell me as yes. as, as a reporter... Nevertheless, I know what happened. Yes, you do know what happened. If you had to tell me, as as you and I are fellow columnists at The Current, theoretically you lean a little bit right, I lean a little bit left. It's getting harder to tell the two of us apart, I think, as time goes by. But um, if you had to sort of write the, old, the, the real headline out of this convention, the thing that really you think has some kind of lasting significance... Uh, at least, you know, leading up to Election Day 2014, what would it be? Uh, It would be two things. I'd need a longer headline, but two things. The first one is that the uh, gun people did not have anywhere near 
the power at that convention that, that a lot of party regulars expected they would when the year began. They're, they're basically, uh, I, I would say they collapsed, but I'm not sure that they ever did have much. Mm-hmm. And the problem for them at the convention was it just it shows whether where, where the votes are. And Martha Dean, the doyen of the gun people, uh, withdrew because she had truly a handful of delegates going into the into the convention. And then their their other person, uh, Joe Visconti from West Hartford, he had very few delegates when 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 the uh, final roll call was done. So that that was a that was a major uh, change in perception. Mm-hmm. The second thing is the Republicans have got trouble with Penny Bakiaki as the endorsed candidate in the upcoming primary. And that starts with T, and that rhymes with P, and that stands for Penny. Well, not only that, but if you if you um, think about the cadence, for, and you're thinking about the music man, Kevin, really, yes. Penny Bakiaki has the same cadence as Gary Indiana. Yes. So that could be her campaign theme yes. song. So too bad she's not running in Gary, Indiana, because her... Um, her antics last week um, on a on another radio station <laughs> that was then picked up by WFSB and broadcast to the world in claiming that she was the victim of racism was a shocking turn. And then on Saturday, well, let me had, just let me I'm just sorry. set this stage for people yes. a little bit. So K- K- Penny Bakayaki, who's a longtime uh, member of the General Assembly, now seeking the l- lieutenant governor nomination. Uh, Kevin will sort of explain what happened uh, down at the Mohegan Sun. But prior to that, she has uh, her husband, uh, first husband uh, died. And, and in fact, is that's the reason she's been an advocate for medical marijuana. She's now married to uh, a Nigerian man, a Nigerian uh, immigrant uh, who has a very interesting family as well. One of his sons plays in the NFL. And so she was alleging going into the convention that another candidate for lieutenant governor, the idea, by the way, that people are fighting over the proverbial bucket of warm spit is kind of surprising, but that another in this vicious fight for lieutenant governor, another candidate, David Walker, had been trying to make something out of that somehow or other, trying to suggest that that was a liability that she had this uh, not African, not African-American husband, but literally African-American husband. Uh, Anyway, so you can pick up the story from there. And uh, then at first she didn't say which campaign it was, and then then she told Susan Raff that it was David Walker's campaign, and he was outraged because he said it's absolutely not true. And uh, after a lot of uh, roiling of, of the Republican ranks, she emerged from her bunker on Saturday to admit that it had never happened. Which is, the whole thing is incredible. You would think that that would disqualify her for lieutenant governor. You'd think it would disqualify her from being state representative, but you'd certainly expect that she would have lost on Saturday. And she eked across the finish line with just over 50% of the delegate votes in a roll call of shame (laughs) for 50% of those Republicans. Well, you know, here's here's my question, and I, I may see this a little bit differently from you, but, you know, as I pick up that thread of the Penny Bakayaki story and try to work it back, follow it back to its origin, what confuses me is that, that the subtext of the story is that, that somebody, whether it was Penny Bakayaki or David Walker, somebody was sort of suggesting it would be a liability for the Republicans yeah. to have black people up on stage, you know, the way the candidates' Which, families... Which is preposterous. Yeah, I mean, here's they're here's losing the, that... The is that from everything I've heard, 
as she has made her way around the state for almost two years, inexplicably trying to be, get this nomination for lieutenant governor, Republican, the Republican faithful like her husband a lot more than they like her. He would have, he would have been nominated with far more than 50 percent of the vote. And it does seem that this is, uh, if you believe that a party that refuses to adjust to demographic trends uh, as this nation changes, as the electorate changes, electorate changes. I mean, I think eight percent of the vote registered voters in Connecticut are now Latino. Um, if you don't change your face, your appearance, your optics, you are d- destined to lose more and more elections. It did seem as though the Republicans just didn't really rise to that challenge. I mean, ultimately, they have, including the five congressional candidates, a lot of white men and some white women. And no people of color. The one person of color they had uh, seeking the nomination for controller, Angel Cadena, is now talking about primarying. But I mean, he Might didn't get well the nomination. Yeah, the, <laughs> there were there's a potential there's potential for a lot of primaries. Um, yeah. with um, oh, certainly there's going to be a primary for governor, mm-hmm. and then there is uh, there will be a primary for lieutenant governor. I, uh, there will not be a primary for Attorney General. Jerry Farrell announced he's not going to do that. Mm. Uh, we don't know if there's going to be a primary for Treasurer, but there could be, and, uh, and there could be one for Comptroller. So that's a lot of primaries. Uh, the, the challenge is that um, primary voters in Connecticut, in both parties, are very much geared toward handing victory to the endorsed candidates. Mm-hmm. It's really unusual for an endorsed candidate to lose. So... Um, but see, but you do. I mean, there's two theories. One of them is primaries hurt you because they drain your energy off with with internecine squabbling. Don't give you enough time to target the guy you're actually right. going to have to run about run against Dan Malloy or Nancy Wyman or whoever that's going to be. The other argument is they keep you in the headlines, they keep you visible, they create energy where little exists. Yes. Maybe this is good for the in Republicans. The summer, you know, the the, the primaries in August, so you have the summer to to do this when it's a normally a slow political time. In addition. Assuming that all the Republican candidates for governor and lieutenant governor qualify, you've got several million dollars that are going to be spent in ads uh, energizing the Republicans, which in theory will be helpful. So, uh, so it does it does give the party more visibility uh, than than they might otherwise have. On the other hand, uh, these primaries can get kind of nasty, as Tom Foley learned. Uh, almost to his defeat four years ago. And I think he's concerned about Mark Bowden running a, a, a tougher campaign. So I believe they decided that a three-way primary would be better than a two-way one, and the, and the uh, Foley camp uh, helped turn some votes to John McKinney so that he would, he would uh, get across the 15% threshold for a primary. Yeah, you referenced to the previous primary. People sometimes forget it was one of Foley's primary opponents, Michael Fidelli, who introduced what was some some people think the most damning ad that anybody ran against Tom Foley uh, or about, anyone else or, or anyone else yeah. about the bankrupting of this co- this company that uh, that his firm ha- had held at one point. Yes. Um, so that's what Foley's concerned about this time, that Bowden, who's basically said, he basically said, you know, I mean, he he did not commit to running an entirely positive campaign. Right. And when they say that, the, you know, on the day of the convention you or the know, day after. They've got, they've got some hand grenades uh, in the trunk of their car. So um, 
the other thing about this, just really quickly, we have a relatively small amount of time left. But, you know, some of these races are not going to be super competitive anyway. I mean, it seems unlikely that any congressional race except the 5th District is really in play. And it seems unlikely to me. I mean, I hate to sort of prejudge an election, but it seems unlikely to me that that many of the under tickets. Oh, I think you're right. You know, so you sort of wonder whether it makes sense. I think they're putting all their their they have all their hopes on Tim Herbst running uh, running for state treasurer. State treasurer. That's yeah. That's the race that they think maybe just just because it's in play because they say it's in play. Uh, You sort of wonder why they don't just think a little bit more about optics in these other races. (laughs) I I don't know. I you know I haven't been involved in organized party politics in a very long time. And I, but I, what I do recall is that it is it is sort of a hothouse when it comes to the under the under ticket, right. and so people go around to town committees and they get support, and it all looks more significant than it is, and they get caught up in it, and then and then people the delegates are committed, and it's the nature of people who are in politics to be competitive, and they want their team to win. and they uh, they kind of lose their way on seeing the seeing the larger picture. So it's um, it, it it can be confusing, and I also think that Tom Foley was busy collecting his fifty-seven percent of the delegates. didn't didn't get involved with with the under ticket, and yeah. that's unusual in in the in the leading political person in a party not to be more involved. But right. I think he's not that. He's just not that interested in it. No, you got a high school and no principal in that situation. All right, Kevin Rennie, uh, his column runs in the Hartford Current. His blog is Daily Ructions, R-U-C-T-I-O-N-S. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. We, we got to go. Thanks to Katie uh, Tolarski for jumping in as our producer. Nobody called. Nobody played Lily do any work today. How's she going to get her, you know, her feet under on the ground? How's she going to get her mojo? That's it. How is Lily Tyson going to get her mojo? I'm Kyone Wolf. Come on, come on. Yes, I just won 50 bucks on the penny backyaki slots.